Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Hi, this is Tracy Fishko. I go to college in the city and my mom said I should call you. Uh, my mom is marrying your dad. Do you want to hang out? Do you know where Times Square is? Tracy! Times Square is so crazy. Isn't it? I don't know anyone who lives here. Yours truly, I got off the bus from Jersey. I thought this was the cool place to live. It's Times Square. I'm an autodidact. Do you know what that means? Yes. That word is one of the things I self-taught myself. You're funny because you don't know you're funny. I know I'm funny. There's nothing I don't know about myself. That's why I can't do therapy. I was, that was pretend rewind, like. <laughs> Hello, everyone who is listening to Screen Thoughts Podcast. It's Hollister and O'Toole here to speak about Mistress America, the film that has everybody on one side or the other. <laughs> There's a lot of controversy and a lot of discussion around it, and it's uh, it's pegged as a comedy, which... This is Hollister here. I didn't I didn't feel it so much as a comedy. It's written by Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig, who I believe are partners in life as well, aren't that they? That is true. They he used tool? to be married to Jennifer Jason Lee, um, but now he's with Greta Gerwig, his collaborator and muse. Okay, there you go. Uh, and it basically, a lot of people say it's a follow-up to the Francis Ha film that he did a couple years ago. Did you see Francis Ha? Well, I didn't until I started to read a little bit about it afterward, and then I did go in and watch it because everybody said you can't see it unless you've seen the first one. So I did, in fact, see it. Did you? I tried. Oh. Not only was it in black and white, it felt to me like it was in black and white. You who love old movies, I'm shocked to hear you talk about it that way. To me, I didn't know <laughs> why they did it, why that was an artistic yeah. choice. And I felt either I'm not hip enough to understand what they're trying to do here. Well, that's good then, because we don't really have to talk about Francis Ha, because we're here to speak about Mistress America. So what'd you think of it? I will say this. Noah Baumbach is definitely his own brand. He's a genre, if you will, like Woody Allen. So Uh there Uh are people who love his movies. You know, I'm very excited to talk about this, because I need your help in deconstructing what it is about Noah Baumbach (laughs) movies that just are not my thing. And that being said, Mistress America is probably the most accessible of his films to me. And if you asked me to provide coverage on this movie, if I were to check all the boxes for all the different elements, the script, the cast, I would probably give it high marks on each element. But somehow when you look at the sum total of the parts, I didn't leave the movie theater thinking, I have to go recommend this movie to all my friends. To me, didn't you feel like you were watching an updated version of The Great Gatsby in a way? Wow. (laughs) And that's another book, which I reread recently. That also depressed me. Okay. Nick is who? Tracy. He is. And very much Tracy, you know, falls in love with the caricature of Brooke the same way Nick fell in love with the caricature of Gatsby. She lived exactly how a young woman should live. Who wants to spend her youth well? She did everything and nothing. And Gatsby and Brooke were both trying to live this big life of show and adoration of them by others and 
accomplishing all of these major things and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the love interest wasn't the same in Gatsby and, and Mistress America, but I halfway through, I'm like, you know what? This is the great Gatsby updated or something. That's what I felt it was. Hollister, what you just said, I think is absolutely brilliant. Oh, thanks. Because, <laughs> yes, there is a line in Mistress America where Tracy, who's the 18-year-old stepsister to be, says to the 30-year-old Greta Gerwick, I'm so impressed by you and so worried for you at the same time. And it was a great summation of the characters. And you're absolutely right. That is the relationship between Nick and the great Gatsby, where as I was watching this movie, I thought, okay, especially because it takes place in New York City, where so many people go to find themselves and follow their dreams, and obviously not everyone makes it, I couldn't decide with the character of Brooke if I was impressed by her that she seemed so full of life, or if I was getting depressed by her that she stayed too long at the party and already had that sense of desperation if she missed the boat. So stylish. I know. I freelance as an interior decorator. You know the Bowery Hotel? Oh my god, yeah. Well, if you walk about a block south, there's a laser hair removal center that's very hip. I did the waiting room. Okay, so here's how The Great Gatsby begins. In my younger, more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages you have. Okay, now the opening line in, the, in, in Mistress America, which just blew me away, I, I actually turned on my phone to write it down, which I never do in a movie theater, but I knew I would forget about it, and I had to have it. And the opening line is, isn't every story a story of betrayal? I mean, that opening line, you know, if that's all they did, <laughs> it would have been a great movie, in my opinion, because some of the lines that you can pull from this, you know, um, are just not to be believed. I think the strongest thing about the movie was the script. It was. And, and, is, and the weakest thing, too, by the way. Well, it's funny because I saw it in a movie theater where there were very few people there, and it seemed as though I were the only person in the theater who was not British. And when the lights went up, all these Brits were leaving the movie theater. And I just heard them ask one another, how strange. Is that how Americans talk? Who talks this way? Well, by the way, nobody. And that's part, I, I think that's one of the problems with the overall film, is that that kind of dialogue, you know, it's like it was like a million people having a conversation with themselves alone. Very rarely were they connecting. Yes, it, was, it and, felt very much like Edward Hopper, where they're all looking yeah. off in different directions. Yeah. But it's one of those movies that when you go and you quote a line from it, and you hear it again, you think that's a very clever line. Oh my God, there's some wonderful there's so many. Yeah. The script is wonderful, but it's almost like when you read a play by Oscar Wilde and you feel all these clever lines that were sewn together without a plot. And it's as yep. though I felt yep. their intentional presence in I the felt, movie. I felt that too, but I'm telling you, Gatsby was in was in their heads when they wrote it. That's just my take on it. So I, I think that's a brilliant insight. And it's interesting too that you reference a literary work because if there is a plot in this movie, it's that Tracy really wants to make staff on this literary journal at her new college. So she's a freshman. And I couldn't tell if the script was actually brilliant because I almost felt as though I were trapped inside the tryout story for that literary journal. They were all so pretentiously being literary, not really, as you say, listening to each other. I felt as though this were the story that would have been submitted. So maybe on some meta level, the script actually made sense in that context. To me, also, there is a little theme that was going on in there. Now, in today's world, the millennials and 
uh, you know, the young younger generation that's coming up behind our generation spends a lot of time preparing themselves for trying to behave in a way they want to respect, not the way the outside world reinforces. And, you know, it's an it's it's almost a new way of living your life. I don't care what anybody thinks. I care what I think. And as a result of that, both these girls start the movie caring very much about public opinion about everything. In other words, Tracy can't be a success unless this literary journal picks her up because she's not reading what she wrote to see if she liked it, nor does the guy who she actually has a crush on, does she care what he thinks of it? All she cares about is that she be chosen by this literary journal group. And and Brooke wants to be a success to the outside world, and she wants to shine, and she wants to be beautiful forever, and she thinks she could be one of the most beautiful people ever, and none of it was based on how they were feeling about themselves. It was based on the outside influences. And and then toward the end of the film, both of them come to the realization that what really matters is how they're feeling. And it's very similar to girls. You know, it's girls without nudity. You know, the, the show, the TV show Girls, you know, and Hannah, the Hannah character is not dissimilar from Tracy. No self-confidence. She just doesn't have, uh, Tracy just isn't as sexually promiscuous as Hannah is. Now, this is so interesting to me that you identify any kind of character growth, because when I was thinking about what is it about Noah Baumbach movies where I just really don't feel the affinity, I think maybe I should, is I feel like the movies that I've seen of his, they're filled with these solipsistic souls. And I feel like all of his characters need a little yoga or they need to volunteer at a soup kitchen. Oh, please don't or, start with the yoga. <laughs> you know, they need to get outside themselves because when the movie first started, at first I thought, thank goodness I am not back in college. This so does not make me want to step foot on a campus. And when Tracy arrives and she calls her mother and her mother said, you know, are you making friends? And she said, mom, it's like being trapped at a party where you don't know anyone, but the party never ends. And I thought, oh, that does actually encapsulate what it feels like to be new on a college campus. So at first she had my sympathy, but every time I found a character a little sympathetic, it's almost as though they inserted something into the script to remind me that I can't really like a Noah Baumbach character. So for example, Greta Gerwig, I found when she appeared, she was effervescent and interesting and quirky. And then, for example, that scene where that woman runs into her at the bar and says, don't you remember me? We went to high school together. And you and that boy used to lick my skin and say, oh, you taste like bitter. <laughs> and I thought, what a strange little scene. Like, why is that in the script? Is it just to oh remind us? Oh, my God, I us? thought it was a, such an important piece of it. It established that in high school, she was the same character with disregard for how anybody else was feeling. In other words, you know, that she was a self-centered, you know, she was that kid, that girl in high school. And still is because she still showed no remorse. And I felt a little bit differently. I didn't see it quite the same way as you. I, I felt that she was saying to her, you're right, I was an asshole, so is everyone in high school, and I've grown up, and if you are going to live back in the past, then that's your problem, not mine. I feel like what she said is, I don't remember you. If I did that, that's kind of funny. I'm going to call that boy and see if he remembers the other hijinks we got into and show no remorse whatsoever and just yells epithets at her as the girl is leaving the bar. Yeah. Maybe. I I don't know. The relationship between Tracy and Brooke, I think, is such an important one 
Um, I think it, you know, that people have people that you just adore, even though you recognize that they're kamikaze pilots on their way to no good end. At times, I thought they really feel like sisters, even though they've just met and there is this age discrepancy between them. And yet, Brooke would run hot and cold. Just want to say that I hate that I'm clearly Brooke and you're clearly Tracy. That bothers me. But you know what? I'm going to get over myself. I liked Brooke's character much more than Tracy's. No, Tracy's the smart one. But anyway, leaving all that Tracy's the user. Oh, I love Tracy. Tracy's not a user. She's a writer. And every writer has to go through a moment in time when they make a decision that they're going to expose things that are true or not. And that it, you know, that if anybody knows that they're a writer, and God knows that Brooke and everybody else around Tracy knew she was a writer, if you know they're a writer, then you have to know that whatever you say and whatever you do and whoever you are around that person might be might be food for 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 their for their thing. She wasn't a user. She's a writer. She has to write what she knows. Tracy did kind of sell her down the river. Brooke had every right to be offended. She did. And the people, by the way, she absolutely, <laughs> you can be, both those things can be true, O'Toole. Both things can be true. A writer writes what happens and the people who are in it can be upset. I mean, don't, on some level, trust me, um, Amy Schumer's father from Trainwreck, she says he was fine with his character, but on some level he felt bad. Trust me. You know, you're, both things can be true. You can be upset with what the writer's written, and the writer has to write it. Both those things are true. <laughs> I stick by my guns. I don't want to be Tracy. You know, she upset Brooke, but she didn't want to apologize for it. Why she did shows she apologize for writing a story? When she said that Brooke was pretty much pathetic and everybody felt sorry for her and she was never going to make it and she should just pack it in and realize that all her dreams were nothing more. that was the story. That was the story. Well, that is kind of a terrible thing to say about a person. But it's the truth. And writers who write the truth are great writers. Writers who are afraid of the truth should not write. And this is why you can be Tracy, and I would rather be. Well, that's Brooke, why. But but that but that's why it's very hard to be a writer because the the writers who could be great often aren't because again they are afraid to to put out there that which is going to hurt another person's feelings, however true it is. But let me ask you this: um, You began by quoting the very first line of the movie. What did you think when they bookended it with the last line of the movie, which was something like? Being a beacon of hope for lesser people is a lonely business. That line can be explained in an earlier quote from the from the um, movie, and it's when Tracy says to Brooke, "Your tragedy is your armor," and Brooke says, "Please, somebody defend me against this monster." And that last line is the armor that they wore. It, 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 neither one of them believed that that's who they were as human beings. It was the armor they wore to get through to the next day, you know. Very interesting. See, Hollister, maybe it's because you spent even more years in New York City than I did. Mm. You have the Dakota ring. No, it's because I've had 19 years of therapy and you have not had any. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you something about the Connecticut house scenes. Okay, I felt like I was going to have my, you know, my ADD brain was starting to flash in there. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that the camera was changing between every line. So you never saw two people speaking a line through the entire Connecticut scenery. You know, Mm -hmm. it it was the camera on one person and then it goes to another person and then it went to another person and their lines didn't seem to intertwine in a way. Everybody seemed to be on in a theater stage having their own, you know, one man show. 
I so absolutely agree. It was very theatrical. Why it did was, you stick it in there? What was that about? I don't know why it was in there. I kept thinking this would have been a fascinating one-act play, and yeah, it was exactly. staged like a play. It was one it location, was. The one Connecticut house. thing, exactly. But what's it called when the camera doesn't, when the camera moves around like that? I don't know that there's a term for it, but I found that interesting. Um, and Did I you thought, like it? Did you like it as well, a vehicle? It's one of these things as a standalone scene, I found it quirky and amusing. And I thought that's when the characters were at their most interesting. Oh, see, but I, I it was yeah. a tonal shift where it had nothing to do with the rest and of the movie. And what was the purpose of the pregnant lady and the next door neighbor? What is the purpose of inserting them into this? It's into a this? very good question because, again, I thought that would have worked as a stage play. Um, you know, just given but, the but levels what, of dialogue Tell me dialogue what they were alone. doing. Then, like, why were they invited to this party? I didn't get it. I don't know. It was okay. almost as though yeah. the director got sick and somebody else took over for a bit I and know. then went back to their Broadway show. Okay, but um, was that a good thing? Or I mean, I to me, it was a bad thing. I found it distracting and irritating, and I wanted them to go away. And, and then when the housekeeper started to do the laundry, I thought, really? Uh, you know, like, where is she coming from? But here's the thing. I, you know, I assume it's some sort of technique, and... You know, I don't, I, I figured you would have much better insight than you apparently do. Well, no, but you see what I mean? It sums up my experience with Noah Baumbach. Uh-huh. Because again, when you look at that scene, you look at all the elements, I think, oh, I like that group dynamic. For example, when they all show up at this home in Greenwich and they arrive as a group and Greta Gerwig says in her way where she delivers the line very well, oh, we're, we're all going into the house together. Okay. That's a little weird, but okay. And I thought, okay, that worked for me in the movie, the day trippers, for example, with Hope Davis and um, Stanley Tucci, and they all pile into the car together. So I thought, okay, this is really set up for comedy. And when they all go inside the house and there's that you know, a uh, passel of pregnant women who are discussing Derrida and having a book club meeting. I thought, oh, this is great. It, it throws their characters and their situation into stark relief that these college kids think they're so smart talking about literature. And yet these pregnant women in the suburbs are the ones discussing these lofty works. And the boy says, oh, they're so smart. And it was very comedic that they were coming and going from rooms and characters were appearing and somebody said, now, who are you? I didn't think it was comedic. I thought it was, you know, intrusive. I I didn't like it. I thought it was comedic, but I didn't think it was like the rest of the movie. Right. And by the way, why is this movie genre comedy? It's not a comedy. It's a dramedy, maybe, but... Frankly, it's 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 tragic. It's a tragedy. Well, you know, it's very interesting because we interviewed recently Sarah Kernikan, who is the two-time Oscar winner who wrote the screenplay for Learning to Drive. And if you haven't listened to O'Toole's uh, video, watched her video of Sarah Kernikan, you must go into Screen Thoughts and go into O'Toole's Encores. And you should watch it. It's really fabulous. And I loved our discussion with Sarah Kernikan because... Learning to Drive has been categorized as a comedy, and I think it fully deserves a Golden Globe nomination for Best Comedy of the Year. Fantastic script, fantastic acting. Sarah Kernikan said, though, that when she wrote it, she didn't think of it as a comedy. But the editor of Learning to Drive is the great Thelma Schoonmacher, who is Martin Scorsese's editor on all his films. And they said when she edited the movie, she turned it into 
what you could call a comedy. So she elevated the humor of the film. And Sarah Kernikan said the sadder parts of the movie seemed to fall away. And I was so curious thinking what would have happened to Mistress America if Thelma Schumacher had edited that one? Would she have somehow been able to elevate what people are pinpointing as comedic elements? And could this sad wash over the characters that I always feel in Noah Baumbach movies, would that have fallen away a little bit more? Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's an amazing connection, you know, between, you know what I mean? Well, I, I really do wonder about the editing because, for example, I have to give you another point, Hollister. When we were discussing the end of the tour, you were talking about Jesse Eisenberg and how you had never seen him play a likable character. Well, I, you know, I wonder if in real life I would like him. He's certainly nobody <laughs> I want to go out with. He's not somebody, you know, as you know, there are 10 actors I've already listed in our, in our podcast that I wished I'd married. He's not one of them. <laughs> Just so you know. Now, did you see the Noah Baumbach movie, The Squid and the Whale? You know, I was going to bring that up, and then I went, didn't want to be negative, you know, Hollister here again. Didn't I didn't get it. You know, I just thought it was a dark, you know, I don't know. What was the point of me being there for an hour and a half and watching that? I didn't get it. Did you, you probably loved it, right? When I compare Mistress America to Squid and the Whale, I definitely can see how Mistress America could skew more towards a comedy. But when I watched that, I oh, thought. Oh, it's so not a comedy though. Come on, admit no, it. It's not when a comedy. I watched, when I watched the Squid and the Whale, Laura Linney and Jeff Daniels, two fantastic actors. Great actors, absolutely. their children were played by Owen Klein, who is the son of. Um, Kevin Klein? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> That's the only Klein. It was either that or Calvin. I have no idea. <laughs> Good guess, Hollister. Yes. Kevin Klein's son played one of their sons, and Jesse Eisenberg played the other. And when you were talking about him in the end of the tour, I thought, oh, right, the squid and the whale. He wasn't likable in that either. And in that Noah Baumbach film, I felt as though I were a voyeur to another family's dysfunction. And that movie was based on Noah Baumbach's own parents' divorce. So in real life, both his parents were film critics. One was a novelist as well. That's true. And and there's something about his films where I, I feel like I'm just looking at other people's dysfunction and they never really rise out of that level of self involvement. Huh. Um, okay. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, see, I didn't see it as self-involved. I, I see them more as self-evolution. You know, I think when you're in college and out of college and look, I'm way out of college and I'm still, uh, you know, I think an unexamined life is, is, is not worth it. You know, I think that the, they're trying to evolve into their best selves. They're trying to find their space and place in life. So I don't think of it as self-involved as much as I do, you know, as, as an evolution of who you are to become, you know. Now, see, I didn't feel that they were evolving. I thought that they all desperately sought recognition. For example, when the character of the boy from the college class says, I feel like I'm a genius and I just want to get to that part of my life where everyone recognizes it. No, but then in the end, they did evolve because in the end, they didn't care. You know, so Tracy leaves the liter. She definitely evolved. She, she, everything she wanted, which was to get into the literary group, she leaves because she recognizes they're idiots and she doesn't want any part of them. And Brooke leaves New York. She realizes that there's too much construction going on, which, by the way, I everybody, you know, I, I did not see the film in New York, but I wished I had because everybody in the theater would start laughing during that line. Basically, Brooke says, look, New York isn't what it used to be. There's too much construction. And anybody who lives in New York knows that that is so very true. When you quote back individual lines, I think that was another brilliant line. It so was, for example, but also they did evolve. I didn't feel the evolution as much. So, for example, when Brooke says, well, I'm going to go to L.A., 
and her character hasn't gone to college and she kind of has a complex about that a little bit. And she says, you know, out in LA, I'm considered well-read. It's one of those lines where I thought, okay, I could see how a New Yorker would find that funny. Um, but I just, I felt as though they were talking past each other and they were all a little lost. You know, we haven't said much about Lola Kirk. Who was in the movie. Gone Girl. That's right. She's the woman that the, the missing wife meets in the, um, in the um, hotel that steals from her. And it's such a different role. And again, a really, really diverse actress. I think she did a really good job and she should not be ignored. Okay. Okay. Now, and then also I did want I did want to mention too that Greta, when she was interviewed and she talked about the part of Brooke, she said she was trying to bring back a dangerous lead, meaning that the the lead character that Brooke is dangerous. You know, she's you know, she's on the edge. She's takes you to the danger in the night. But she was never I never felt that anybody was in danger. Okay, Hollister, let me ask you this. You are a stickler for titles. What did you think about the title Mistress America? Well, I, I got it. You know, Mistress America is, yeah, I thought it was a good title, actually. <laughs> I know, because... I know. Well, because, you know why? Because, uh, you know, America, it was, I'm going to own America. I'm going to be this new young American that's going to take over. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to open a restaurant as it's never been done before. And I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To me, I felt like it sounded like a superhero movie gone awry. Did not bother me at all. So interesting. I never know which way you're going to swing. I know, me neither. um, And, you know, the the thing is, too, again, the dialogue, I wouldn't be surprised if this were nominated for an Oscar for Best Screenplay. There's some great moments in this film with with great dialogue sentences, but they don't come from a combination of things, you know? It's just, so for, I don't, I don't think it should be up for great for the best screenplay, but we'll see. It might be, it might be because I have a feeling the Academy will like him and her. Maybe they have to have another category. You know how I'm always trying to add categories like uh-huh. casting director, et cetera, but maybe the new category needs to be best one-liners. Did you notice this too in the opening credits? And I liked how the movie started. I liked the font. I liked the soundtrack. <laughs> I, did. I, didn't, I, I, I did not notice the opening credits. You'll be not surprised to uh, know. Well, it was very interesting because, you know, you see the big names, Noah Baumbach, Greta Gerwig, and almost right up there at the very beginning, they gave credit to the film's colorist. And I thought, I don't think I have ever seen a movie before where the colorist got notice up front. Well, there you go. Which was interesting because many scenes to me were dark. And then I thought, well, that must have been an artistic choice that they wanted a lot of the scenes and internal shots to have this dark pall over the scene. I would think that that's true. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, It seemed like it was trying to be Breakfast at Tiffany set in New York with fire escapes and cats, but somehow... I just didn't feel the same connection to the characters. I did enjoy many things about it. Again, it's just the overall impression, I'm not sure, left me feeling any kind of buoyancy. Like Woody Allen, it's not getting a full national release, uh, so it's hard to find the movie, but I'm sure it'll be uh, available on iTunes soon. And so if you want to take a look, uh, I'm sure it'll be playing on the Lower East Side for a very long time to come. And I did Google the script because I would have loved to have read the screenplay, but I couldn't find it anywhere. But that is one screenplay I would love to read. Well, we'll see. You know what? Maybe I'll see if I can get it for you for Christmas. Oh, I like that idea. Okay, then. And for Christmas, maybe I'll write a short story about you and publish it and (laughs) pretend like I'm not really sorry I did. I knew that was going to come up. (laughs) 